Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. Hello and welcome to In Conversation With. Today I'm joined by James Jones Tinsley, self-invested pensions technical specialist at Barnet Waddingham. Thank you for joining me today, James. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Um, so uh, could you give us a bit of a background into yourself and how you got started in financial services? Yes, well, we're going back a very long time now to uh, the mid-80s. My first job was as a pensions administrator for Scottish widows. And then since then, uh, I've probably moved in more of a technical direction with the organisations that I've worked for uh, since then. And uh, I've been with Barnet Waddingham since 2015. Um, Before that, I was uh, an independent financial advisor for 13 years. But my role within Barnet Waddingham now is is a non-regulated one, um, but very much sort of media-facing and advisor-facing uh, and, and talking about developments with, with the press and with advisors as well on, on all matters to do with pensions, uh, specifically of a, of a technical nature. Okay. So since you are kind of a specialist when it comes to pensions, um, I think you're the best person to kind of cover the topics we have today. Um, So to start off, um, can you give us a brief update on the status of the proposed lifetime allowance abolition and its potential impact on clients? Well, we have the spring budget this year where the Chancellor, I think, surprised us all by announcing that the lifetime allowance was to be abolished from the 6th of April next year. Mm-hmm. I think we were all expecting, based on what had been leaked to the press leading up to the budget, that the lifetime allowance figure would be increased back up to the dizzy heights of 1.5 or even 1.8 million again. But mm-hmm. to uh, propose that it would be abolished altogether, as I say, came as a bit of a bombshell. Um, and so the idea is that for the current tax year, there is no lifetime allowance excess tax charge where somebody's pension fund exceeds their LTA. And then from the 6th of April next year, Based upon what we know so far, um, and we don't know the full picture yet, but the inference seems to be that there will be um, a specific division from a taxation point of view between pension income and pension lump sums. Mm. Whereas with the lifetime allowances we've been, you know, working with it since 2006, both income and lump sums are all sort of put together to create a monetary value to set against that individual's lifetime allowance. But now there seems to be, as I say, this intention to say all pension income will be taxed at the recipient's marginal rate of income tax and Mm. lump sums will be payable tax-free, but up to specific amounts. So I suppose the irony here is that although 
the idea is that the lifetime allowance, as we, we've known it and loved it over these last 17 years, is to be abolished altogether. It's looking likely that there will be two new allowances replacing it. One is the lump sum allowance, which broadly deals with a person's tax-free cash sum from their pension, and then an overarching lump sum and death benefit allowance, which covers tax-free cash and any death benefit payments. Mm -hmm. And to add to the irony, the proposed value of that lump sum and death benefit allowance is £1,073,100, which is the current size of the lifetime allowance. So, plus a charge. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the only other thing I would say here in terms of potential impact on clients, and it's something that's received um, a lot of focus since the proposals were first set out in mid-July, is what the impact will be on the taxation of pension death benefits where somebody dies under age 75. And so, the arguably generous um, taxation of pension death benefits in that scenario that came in from 2015 could ultimately be changed so that all pension income, regardless of a person's age at death, is subject to the um, the payment of income tax. That's certainly something that we'll be receiving a, a lot of attention, I think, over the next few months. Right. And regarding the finance bill 2023 to 2024, Mm. have there been any recent amendments to the pension clauses that advisors should be aware of? Not that really I'm aware of at the moment. And and Mm -hmm. that's partly the frustration because um, the clauses were first released on the 18th of July this year. So very soon, only a few days after the Finance Number 2 Act 2023 received royal assent and HMRC held what they called their legislation day and Mm -hmm. part of the legislation that was released on that day 18th of July were the initial draft of the pension clauses for the finance bill Mm 23-24. There was also an accompanying policy paper and some explanatory notes uh, that came out with those draft clauses and effectively what the government was saying was, was, right, please let us know if you have any comments on these prior Mm -hmm. to the bill formally being introduced into Parliament. So, towards the end of those clauses, there is very much a placeholder which is saying, (laughs) to some extent, uh, with regards to all the transitional provisions um, for those people who were already taking some of their pension benefits, watch this space. And so Mm -hmm. we are aware that there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes at the moment. HMRC um, introduced what they call their Lifetime Allowance Working Group shortly after the spring budget. And so I'm sure that they are working on all these gaps at the moment. And fingers crossed, you know, we'll, we'll see those uh, gaps filled in when the finance bill formally is introduced to Parliament. Mm-hmm. And um, with the LTA abolition set for April 6, 2024, as you stated previously, how confident are you in the government's ability to pass the finance bill in time, uh, considering the possibility of an upcoming general election? 
<laughs> just just to add to uh, the fun and games. So um, much going on. I mean, to answer your question in terms of how confident am I to pass this finance bill in time, um, I must be honest, not very confident at the moment. And mm. I've got one eye on the calendar. And, um, you know, we're, we're talking now in mid-October. Um, we're still waiting for the bill to be formally introduced into Parliament really it could do with being introduced sooner rather than later and now that we've got through conferences and then to me this would be an ideal opportunity to start the bill's passage through parliament because mm-hmm. you know based on previous bills it can take some weeks and months to actually complete its full passage up to the point of royal assent mm-hmm. it could be they're going to wait until the opening of parliament uh, it could be they're going to wait until the autumn statement which is uh, not until the 22nd of November but yeah. I, re- I really hope they don't wait that long because the problem is before we know it it'll be Christmas and New Year and they'll all be off again on their Christmas and New Year parliamentary recess and then by the time they all come back we've only got probably the best part of three months before the 6th of April 2024 to to get the whole thing done through Parliament um, and all those co- consultations and discussions to take place which could have an impact then on the wording of the various pension clauses um, and that yeah the general election uh, potentially throws another spanner in the works because we know that one has to be held before i think it's january 2025 at the absolute latest but i genuinely think it will happen at some point next year Mm -hmm. whether that's october whether it's may who knows at the moment but in terms of trying to get this bill through parliament uh, as you'll be aware whenever an election date is announced, the whole civil service then goes into what's yes. called PERDA and, mm-hmm. and, and and nothing happens for quite a few weeks before the yeah. election date. So that would only serve to frustrate its passage as well. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm chomping at the bit to get on with it, really. <laughs> let's get let's get it moving. <laughs> Hopefully, they hear your cries, <laughs> your pleas. Um, but why is sustaining the state? pension triple lock becoming increasingly challenging and how does the general election complicate matters further right well we now have received the final piece in the jigsaw in the shape of the september cpi figure in determining if the pension triple lock happens as it should do Mm -hmm. which is the highest of the three measures that's going to ultimately feed through to the increase in the state pension from april next year Mm -hmm. and i think uh, based upon what what i saw and heard when the cpi figure for september came out at 6.7 percent the same as for august i think that did confound one or two economists who were hoping that it might have actually gone down a little bit more to sort of around 6.5 or something like that um so that the but this, the fact is that looking at that cpi figure that we now have and comparing it to the figure for average earnings that, that came out recently as well that was a figure of 8.5%. So taking the three elements of the pension triple lock, 8.5% is is the highest. Mm-hmm. And in theory, that would be 
the increase in the state pension from next April, which would, for those people who are on the new state pension, which was first introduced in 2016, that would mean an increase, an overall increase uh, in their annual state pension by just over £900. So, yeah. you know, significant amounts for those on the basic state pension, those who started to draw it before 2016, then the increase, it's still not insignificant. It's just knocking on the door of an extra £700 a year. And of course, the, <laughs> what sounds great news, um, and especially on the back of another bumper increase this calendar year uh, in April 23 of just over 10%, there is, of course, a cost attached to that. And, you know, some economists reckon that will be a, about an extra £8 billion that the government's got to find to afford that increase. And so this is where I'm sort of seeing uh, elements of doubt over whether the increase will be as high as 8.5% um, and whether or not some sort of review is going on uh, between the Treasury and the DWP as to whether or not to tweak the figures to some extent hopefully without doing away with the triple lock altogether, but to maybe make it more affordable for the government. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big call. And I think going back to the point about the general election, um, mm -hmm. would, you know, in terms of manifestos coming out, would any party dare not to commit to it uh, in those manifestos? Um, and, We've been there before, Kim. I think this is the thing. Two years ago, we were in a similar situation, albeit due to the impact of the COVID pandemic, where mm -hmm. average earnings was coming out around 8%, which mm -hmm. was way out of line in those uh, halcyon days with what inflation was at that point in time. Um, but that was because of everybody coming off furlough and going back into work again. And yeah. In that particular year, 2021, what they did do was say, well, we're not going to do a triple lock. We're going to do a double lock. Mm -hmm. And arguably, that did break one of the Conservative Party's manifestos that was in mm -hmm. their 2019 manifesto. So there are precedents. Um, but I think particularly knowing that a general election is around the corner, it's going to be a very brave government that will try and do another double lock again or even something completely different. Mm. And... Thinking about this general election and whatever government might come in place, uh, whether it's the current one or a new government, um, do you expect uh, that they will review the state pension age as a cost control measure following the election? Yes, <laughs> simple answer. Um, I do, because uh, really control of the state pension age is one of the main levers that any government has to try and control the cost of the state pension. Mm. Um, and you'll recall that not that long ago, there was a review of the state pension age carried out by the incumbent government where they were looking at actually accelerating the increase in the state pension age from 67 to 68. At the moment, the legislation on the statute books has that increase from 67 to 68 taking place around 2044 to 46. Mm -hmm. But they were actually looking at the potential again, with cost in mind, of bringing it forward so that the increase to 68 would actually happen maybe in the, uh, you know, as early as the middle of the next decade, so sort of around 20, 2035. Um, so 
although nothing came of that review, it was decided that they would keep things as they are for now. There was a very heavy hint dropped at the time that as soon as there is a new parliament with a new potentially a, a new government, although that could be a new Conservative government, of course, um, that there would be another review of the state pension age. So I think we will get one uh, if there is a decision made on grounds of cost to actually increase the state pension age from 67 to 68 at a date earlier than 2044. Mm-hmm. I think my own personal view is the communication of that will have to be absolutely paramount because the last thing that any new government wants to avoid is what the position that we were in a few years ago with the women against state pension inequality, the WASPy women and 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 their battles against the government that they took to parliament, uh, sorry, took to um, the lawyers and things like mm-hmm. that. The the fallout, both from a sort of a, you know, you think about the implications could be certainly political, could be financial. They don't want uh, that to happen again. So if a decision is made to actually increase the state pension age earlier than is currently forecast, then Mm -hmm. they should make sure that enough notice is given to the people who will be affected by that acceleration. Mm -hmm. And I think based off of our conversation, one thing I've got is that a lot of these things are uncertain. Um, And I'm sure that um, our audience of financial advisors are kind of concerned about that. So how should financial advisors guide their clients amid the uncertainty around lifetime allowance and uh, the triple lock? Well, it's a good question, Kim. And certainly I think talking to advisors recently, uh, as I have been doing, you can sense that frustration because they want to keep their clients informed proactively. Yeah. Um, That, you know, in my days as an advisor, that to me was the absolute necessity. Um, But where there are no tangible developments and there is still that air of uncertainty weighing above us all, it doesn't make it any easier to actually be proactive with clients other than to say, hello again, uh, no further developments as yet, but we're keeping our eyes on, uh, ear to the ground, if you like, eyes on the prize. And whenever there are any developments, we will, of course, let you know as soon as we can. And Mm Uncertainty is no good at all, particularly when you've got long-term financial planning in mind mm-hmm. uh, and clearly pensions fit into that definition. So um, ourselves at Barnet Waddingham, uh, what we're trying to do is, as well as obviously keeping a, a very close watch on any developments, turn those into practical sessions for uh, advisors and para planners, uh, talk about what we are aware of and how that could feed through to their clients. So the advisors' participation in events like that can then enable them, hopefully, to to have those proactive con- uh, conversations with their clients um, mm-hmm. as as things pan out. But really, the ultimate utopian aim would be to get through that period of uncertainty and allow us all to move forward with, including the clients, with with the certainty of where the legislation is going. Mm-hmm. And are there any strategies um, that advisors can use to help their clients adapt to evolving pension policies? Again, with my conversations with advisors, what a lot of them are doing is 
They are engaging proactively with their clients based upon what we know and what could happen and say, right, okay, here's your situation at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the potential different scenarios that could develop and what the implications of those scenarios or outcomes would mean for you in your specific situation um, and what, if anything, we can do now ahead of that. And I think also, you know, talk about worst case scenarios as well um, and say, right, well, if, you know, the worst happened with something to do with, say, the taxation of pensions, um, what would that mean for each client and could anything be proactively put in place now to hopefully help mitigate and that, those worst case situations mm-hmm. but yeah. it's not an ideal situation i think that's that's the and, that, and i'll say that frustration is is being shared by everyone at the moment for sure and how do changes in pension policies impact investments retirement planning and tax considerations for clients well, I think based upon what I've just said uh, to your last question, it very much depends upon what the changes actually are. Yeah. And then what the what the implications of those changes are for each client's personal situation. Right. And I, and I think the other key thing is where there is going to be a change, how soon is that change going to come in? Because yeah. if it's the next day, then clearly that very much restricts any proactive uh, proactive action that can be taken by the advisor uh, and their clients to to try and mitigate the impact of that. And again, I think those sort of scenarios to me, it, it, it doesn't speak of, of poor governance from a point of view of overseeing the imposition of any new tax legislation. Really, mm-hmm. there should be a meaningful lead up to any significant change in legislation so mm-hmm. that advisors can have those discussions with the clients and put in place any mitigating factors in good time rather than being immediately on the back foot and, and you know, everybody's panicking, which, which nobody wants. Yeah. So a tailored approach is the best. Agreed. Yes. Um, and if the lifetime allowance is abolished, what are there any um, tax efficient strategies, saving strategies um, that advisors should discuss with their clients? Thinking about what I said a few a few minutes ago, um, if the lifetime allowance is abolished, and I think at the moment, Kim, it is a case of if mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than when. I mean, yeah. we all know when the government of the day would ideally like the lifetime allowance to be abolished. Mm-hmm. Um, but depending upon when we have the general election, depending upon how long it takes to get legislation through Parliament, depending upon who wins a general election and mm-hmm. whether they seek to um, uh, change the, any abolition plans clearly then again this, this is the uncertainty that we're currently facing but let's just say the lifetime allowance is abolished at the moment based on what we know they there are two different allowances which are going to be introduced in their place mm-hmm. focusing particularly on lump sum payments mm-hmm. so the tax-free cash from a person's pension pot and then death benefits um mm-hmm. And up to prescribed limits, those lump sums can be paid to uh, the relevant recipients Mm tax-free. And although I've mentioned 
the sort of the, the figure, the, the current lifetime allowance figure, which mm-hmm. will probably be the new lump sum of death benefit allowance for most people. I think it's important to remember as well for all those people who have one or more forms of pension protection, like fixed protection, enhanced protection, etc. Um, there is the potential for the uh, tax-free lump sum figures to be higher for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's something else to be factored into any conversations with clients. And ultimately then, depending upon uh, the individual client's attitude to investment risk and their capacity for loss, the advisors can look to the savings landscape and say, right, what other tax-efficient savings are out there? And I'm thinking here of ISAs, national savings and investments, uh, venture capital trusts for for those who have more uh, uh, risk, if you like, or willing to take on more risk and say, if these are appropriate for the client's overall situation, then then you know let's look at them and consider them. So there are there are tax efficient strategies out there, um, particularly on the savings front, uh, and 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 I've, you know there are more that I haven't mentioned, but uh, again, hopefully we will know exactly what we're dealing with from the sixth of April next year, uh, and that will help clients and the advisors as well. Yeah. And lastly, you've shared a lot, um, but are there any key um, takeaways or any key advice that you want to leave with um, financial advisors regarding these evolving pension policies and the election year uncertainties? Yes, I think the the main one really, and hopefully this has come across in what I've said so far, is um, let's all work together. And when I say we, I'm meaning advisors, power planners, journalists like yourselves, Mm -hmm. uh, providers like Barna Waddingham. Let's all work together to keep a really close watch and focus on everything that's developing over the course of the next few months and share those developments with one another so Mm -hmm. that ultimately advisors can, as I've said, proactively keep their clients as informed as possible and work with them on potential strategies, depending on what the ultimate outcomes could be. Because I think the worst thing that could happen for for any advisor, speaking from personal experience, is you get a client on the phone who says something like, this bloke down the pubs just told me that dot, 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 you know, and yeah. automatically think, oh, no, because there is so much misinformation out there. So and much. that, you know, that that really is what we need to tackle and, and defeat and put that then to uh, the client's advantage. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Making cl- having clear information out there, I think, is the most Absolutely. important thing. Agreed. Um, but... Thank you so much uh, for speaking with me today, James, and Pleasure. sharing your breadth of knowledge. It was very interesting. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time. 